Welcome to the Science and Beers podcast with me, Mick Mickey. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. We cover a new topic each episode, so join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. Thanks for joining me on the Science Beers Podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. We're sitting here with the Brooklyn... Brooklyn Brewery. Brooklyn Brewery IPA. IPA. East IPA. Could what be worse. What does this taste like? Like New York, right? 6.9%. <laughs> Is good. it? It's good. Oh, heavy, huh? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Mm. So we're going to drink a couple of these. We're going to talk science. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, Carolyn, you're you're uh, you're an uh, associate professor. Almost, yeah. From I guess at, next week on. <laughs> at at, at Nordsea, mm. at the Nordic Center for Earth Evolution. Yeah. At the University of Southern Denmark. You're also a chair of geobiology at DS, the Danish Institute for Advanced Studies. Is that not right? That's right. Yes. Uh, uh, they now call it a fellow at DS. Not you, are, a chair. you are a fellow. I'm a fellow. <laughs> I'm a fellow. Does so that mean you don't get a chair anymore? I have two chairs. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> so they didn't take my chair. No, but I'm a fellow. I'm, they have this. Um, re, they had a renaming of our titles, and so you can be a professor at the institute. You can be a fellow at Diaz. Yeah. What does it involve? Um, so I mean, essentially, Diaz is. is um, um, it's supposed to be some sort of melting pot of, of the brightest minds that we have at SDU. And um, it's very interdisciplinary. And if you're a fellow, you're supposed to basically do brilliant research and blend it together with the other people's research so that we develop ideas that you otherwise would probably not develop because you would be alone and never meet those people yeah. or you would only be within your field, right? And so there is a bunch of very interesting assistant and associate professors and also senior fellows that um, indeed you wouldn't meet them necessarily from social science, from, from history, from all over the place, from, from health science. And it's, you know, actually you can develop joint ideas, you can actually develop even projects. And we started talking to each other more and actually we would never meet without Dia. So it's nice. I sit beside, my office is besides one of, of uh, an assistant professor who works on literature and he's following up tracks in, in older literature and historical literature, how humans responded to past climate change uh -huh. and how they basically put that into literature and how they moved through different countries because they wanted to avoid or follow certain climate tracks, right? And um, so we had the idea to develop a joint project from this. I would never have met that guy because literature, yeah. right? Yeah, you study <laughs> biology, you're, so, you're, you're mm. always going to be in the department for biology. Yeah, you usually are, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you talk to people from biology, your ideas mm. are in biology, so, so it's... No, it's very helpful, actually. From, from literature. So I found this really a great opportunity and I like the other fellows <laughs> that are there. It's, it's, it's a nice thing, you know, it was obviously a bit interrupted to really meet in person, but people are coming back and you can meet them now again and uh, we got this nice new building. Yeah. You should actually come by, we have a roof, new rooftop terrace. You have a rooftop terrace, you say, that, that could be good for... Uh, it's very important for, for the meetings. <laughs> yeah. But you, it's summer, 
Indeed, and, indeed. And you need to sit somewhere. Scientists and beer. Your, your, your own field of science, it kind of it combines different areas. So biology, chemistry, geology, hmm? biogeochemistry. Yeah, yeah, that's how you do it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, what just, else just would be, you do, right? Be, be, before, before we get into to talking about biogeochemistry and, and, and climate change, I want to know, how did you get into science? What inspired you? Well, I, I think I wanted to be, I didn't, I didn't quite know what a scientist is as a, as a child because I didn't know anyone who was doing that. But I really um, liked the ocean and I wanted to know stuff about it. When I was a child, I, we, we lived close to the Mediterranean, we had a house there and then we went to the water every day and I didn't have diving classes so I brought normal classes and looked into the water with them to see what's down there and I saw all the little animals and the fish and you know little corals. It's oh, very like, a, like a lens with, with yeah. some kind of plastic? Well I just essentially sure. took a drinking class in the first place mm -hmm. and um, when I was seven or eight I got diving proper diving equipment like snorkeling equipment from my parents finally so I could actually you know look at it and I found it so beautiful and I, I like most the corals, they're gorgonies um, in Italy and they are colorful and then I learned that they are a symbiosis which I didn't know what it is then but my dad tried to explain so there are algae and there are animals and they somehow work together and I became a bit obsessed with this until I was a teenager and um, that, that was kind of I think the stepping stone for me to decide that I want to study biology at a point because I really like to figure out about the ocean. I never worked on corals, <laughs> but then I mean, when I when I studied biology, then I was um, still I had this goal, right, to do marine biology, and um, I went at a point to Kiel, which is the place in Germany where you go if you want to study marine biology or marine biogeochemistry. And there was a guy who became my mentor actually over the years, who's always until now been my mentor, Hermann Bange. He's a greenhouse gas specialist. And he's a chemist by training. And he tries to figure out what builds up methane and nitrous oxide, which are two important greenhouse gases in the ocean, right? And tries to understand those processes and how important this is and how it changes in response to climate change. And I found this so interesting, so I asked him if I could work for him. And he gave me such a student helper job. And I've been working for him then and did my master's with him. And um, I, I took this actually as an example, nitrous oxide production for something that organisms make to, to warm up the world, right? Because it's a, one of the strongest greenhouse gases. Laughing I, gas. Yeah, laughing gas. Yeah, Hermann even wrote a paper that's called Laughing Gas, it's not a laughing matter. <laughs> he did. He has, he has good titles for his papers. Okay, so let, let's focus on, on NTO then. So, 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 so you're, uh, you're hey, laughing, you know, laughing gas. You know huh? something. <laughs> so, uh, no, no, it's, it's good. Yeah, so, so you said, you're, you're, the theory that, that inspired you during your masters was uh, was to try and find if, if the microbes that were uh, that were releasing NTO as a, a normal byproduct of their metabolism they, they they were making the world a better environment for for them to live in. Yeah, they would kind of self-stabilize um, in an environment, right? That was an idea. Um, so that's what I always thought. You, as an organism, you would have an interest in shaping your environment in a way that it makes it better suitable for you and your fellows, more or less, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a simplistic thought, and um, yeah, I'm, it's 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 discussed a lot, right? People believe it, people don't believe it. 
it's essentially what's referred to as the Gaia theory. It's that, that organisms create a habitable environment for themselves and other organisms and that this is constantly via feedbacks optimized and stabilizes in a, in a continuously more stable and um, conservative frame. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's basically my big question in science to figure out if this is right or not. So I think the, that's the, basically the driving everything Gaia, more or less. Gaia theory <laughs> proposed by James Lovelock. Mm -hmm. James Lovelock. And he, he, you say that funny. <laughs> he, James Lovelock? Yeah, that sounds super funny. James. How, how, how would you say it? I don't know, I say James. James. Yeah, yeah. James. Yes, James. Yes, James. No, no, that's fine. I don't know. I mean, I, he didn't respond to my calls, so I don't know how he would say his own name. <laughs> I, I, I heard, heard, heard him talk in a, in a podcast recently. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but he's mid-90s now, exactly, right? Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. But he was, it was, <laughs> he was kind of reflecting on his, on his life. He started off as a, as a, as a chemist. Mm. And the... They were experimenting on, on, on mice and about yep. they were trying to like freeze mice and then bring them back to life again. I can't remember the reason why they were doing that in I don't know the 50s I don't or think 60s. that's a good idea. I don't know. But so they were using a, a hot a hot spoon to to like heat the heart up first. So they were scolding the Okay, yeah yeah. Like the, the, the science community at the time were using a hot spoon to like Heat yeah. the heart up first so that the yeah. mice would come back yeah. to life. So then he didn't like that. He, he wanted a more humane way. And that's understandable. So he <laughs> invented the microwave. Okay, how did that go? <laughs> like, well, well, we heat up our food in the microwave. <laughs> he, he, he invented the microwave. and then he, For heating up mice. And, and then he invented the electron capture detector. Yeah, which is big because, you know, you measure yeah. nitrous oxide with it. Yeah. <laughs> You need a GCECD system. Yeah, that's important. Uh, and then so he was he's able to like measure the, the, the atmospheric gas concentration, yeah. uh, and then and then come up with the theory that would I be right in saying in particular it's the microorganisms that regulate the the chemistry of the Earth. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was essentially what was put forward, what was possible through inventing the electron capture detector and doing proper gas measurements. And then you can actually see that organisms largely change the composition of the atmosphere and in a way that other organisms or themselves can use it again, right? And this comes together again with greenhouse gases, right? If you have organisms moderating this whole system, then so you have them taking that up and then it's not warming up too much, it's not getting too cold. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the bar, barmaid is asking, do we need a refill? Um, I guess we, I'm still good. No, we'll, we'll be okay, we'll be okay. I'll come in in five minutes, okay? <laughs> so for some, or some microorganisms would produce greenhouse gas by one means or another and then others would, would consume greenhouse gases and kind of work to keep the earth in it. Well, that would be one way, and um, essentially it's also connected to temperature stabilization, right? One of the big issues of organisms is that they tolerate only certain temperatures, and you would want them to, or they would want to thrive in a narrow range of temperatures, essentially. And if they moderate the greenhouse gas abundance in the atmosphere, this directly influences the temperature of the Earth. So that would be fine, right? If you could just do this, you could warm it up, you could cool it down, you could keep it in a balance. Yes. And this needs, uh, the more complex the network is of organisms, 
the more stable you get because there's only so much overlap. So, so you evolve a planet that needs very stable conditions, but also the life supports those very stable conditions, which we now have essentially, right? We only have a very narrow temperature range on the whole planet, despite it looks a bit differently, but essentially the average temperatures are, are quite narrow, around 20 degrees, right? So it's nice and cozy. Can, can, can you talk a little bit about how extraordinary it is that we live in a, on, a, on a planet like this? But there's only one. <laughs> so, I mean, there is the distance to the sun, which um, is maybe the biggest uh, constraint to be a planet that can uh, have life or not. You have a couple of planets like Mars right beside the Earth, which are then in possibly in the habitable zone still, but just a bit too cold or a bit too warm to really make it work the way that Earth could make it work, because there you see the temperature is essentially important. But also, it's a couple of different other parameters, right? You would have to have the right chemical composition. And by some chance or not chance, you would have to have built up an atmosphere in some sense to provide a first, protect, you know, first protection mm -hmm. for this planet. And then you need to start being chemically so abundant and bringing all the chemically to chemicals together in one little pond or something to make life. I mean, how, how, how can that even happen? It's somewhat not understandable, somewhat and it actually isn't explainable. Right? Mm. So there's something called the Eigen Paradoxon, which tells you that you can't just have DNA assembled in a certain length unless you have encoded a repair or replication enzyme. But chemically, you can't get as much to, to encode this enzyme in the first place, so it's actually not explainable how the first bit of DNA could assemble like this. So this is a quite rare thing. <laughs> quite, quite rare. Yeah, it's quite rare. I'm in the NASA. I made a discovery two years ago about the solar system, where you have a couple of planets that are also in, a, in the right distance in the to Goldilocks a star. Zone. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so this is something obviously also special. And I'm not quite sure what uh, happened afterwards because that was a very quick press release, um, mm. and they were going to look into the atmospheric composition of those planets that were in, in, in question for, for possibly having life. But I didn't hear anything, so it probably failed. <laughs> so yeah. well, well, but that would be the way you go, right? You would essentially look at the atmospheric composition, which, which brings you back to the greenhouse gases. You would look at what is this atmosphere made of. Mm. And if you have enough CO2, if you have methane, if you have anything that deviates from a pure chemical production, you, would, you could conclude there's life. Yes, because in chemistry mm. there's a natural way in, in which chemicals will, will interact and, and, and degrade. Sure. But, if, but if there's a if there's something deliberately pumping up, well, and you can predict this, you right? You like can predict from the from the elemental composition of the planet what you would chemically expect if there is no life, just mm. by you know different thermodynamical movements by diffusions and other things. Yeah, so it, it would be what CO2, hydrogen, sulfide. There's probably lots of CO2. There's probably, yeah, maybe hydrogen sulfide, maybe not, um, you don't know. But um, if you, for example, find something like oxygen, then that's quite a like point, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're making the point that there are some organisms actually making this, and this took long on our Earth to develop this, right? Oxygen cannot be naturally uh, created with geology and chemistry. This is no. impossible. No, not like really. Fr free oxygen. Not, not, in, not in amounts, right? Yeah. Maybe in traces, but like, no. <laughs> so this makes our Earth very special, right? Yeah. That we have the, all this oxygen around here. We all feed on it. And, and, and the 
So this would be a clear hint, but there are other hints. You don't necessarily need to have life forms making oxygen. You could have a bunch of other life forms making methane, for example. Yeah. But, but then with, with oxygen, what, it, it doesn't just provide, say, species like us something mm -hmm. to breathe. It created a protective layer from uh, with, the, with the ozone. To, to block out the harmful sure. UV rays. Sure, so, we are so very dependent on this, mm -hmm. right? If you see, if you look at the ozone hole, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, obviously, right? It's uh, it, it lets through the, the UV radiation in too high amounts, and that's that's dangerous. It mutates the DNA and destroys it in the end. So we actually need some sorts of layers to protect something like DNA, a complex molecule. Yeah. So you can't just you can't just have no atmosphere. This is not not. Featuring so, so life at with, all. Without microorganisms 2.8 billion <laughs> years ago, with, with multicellular organisms. Well, there are other like types us. of atmospheres, right? You could have water vapor, is the most common thing uh -huh. in our atmosphere, which actually takes a big part of protecting us. But for more complex life forms, you would need some more, and, you, and the ozone layer comes in handy. Uh -huh. And we know that it comes handy since we made a hole into it, so um, yeah, yeah, that was helpful. So there was this guy. Paul Grutz, a pretty famous chemist, he's the only one who in environmental science ever got a Nobel Prize. And um, he discovered the ozone hole. And he put that forward that actually, you know, it could have gone so much worse. Um, it was by chance that it was discovered more or less. I mean, he had the idea to it, but it was somewhat by chance and it was somewhat by chance that he directly understood what caused it. And it was also by chance that we used CFCs. Just, just, just for the listener, it's CFCs mm. yeah. that were used as a coolant in refrigerators. Mm -hmm. yeah. They cause it, but also nitrous oxide uh, contributes to causing it, right? Because it um, degrades to radicals and then depletes the ozone mm -hmm. layer, which is the double function of nitrous oxide. <laughs> it's a double devil. <laughs> now, um, but it's, a, it's, it's an interesting thing, this whole discovery of the ozone hole and this idea like how we actually and their Gaia in a way is was criticized by him <clears throat> and by other people afterwards because we were we were quite lucky because when CFCs were invented you could also have used not a fluoride form but a bromide form and the depletion of the ozone layer would have been so much faster so essentially it would be not repairable anymore. So it was just a matter of luck. And it was so close that we didn't destroy all life, just like this. <laughs> so, so this whole idea of self-regulation and the organisms will, will do it if we don't, um, has its weak points. The, the, the person who invented CFCs might go down in history as, as one of the most terrible inventors in history. You know? Yeah, but he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what right? he was doing. So but it wasn't just that. It wasn't <coughs> just that. So I, I think his name is Thomas. Thomas somebody. Yeah. And, and so he, in, he whenever the, the, the cars were a thing in, in, in America about 100 years ago, they, they made this like kick with the engine that he discovered if you put lead inside the, the, the gas. That's right, I read it. <laughs> then it stops the kick. So then everybody started to get lead poisoning. Yeah. And then he invented yeah, CFC quite work. for the refrigerator. <laughs> And he created a oh, whole news there. Then the poor guy, actually, he actually got smallpox. And because he was an inventor in front of commas, he, 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 he lost use of his legs. So he made a home pulley system so he could like raise himself up and down again. But that, well, that's not so easy. that malfunctioned and he got he strangled in it and he died by his own invention. So this Gaia thing is actually <laughs> a thing, right? Gaia <laughs> theory is a thing. The Earth is so, a self-regulated so, system. So the Earth said like, no thanks, dude. 
I kind of read about this at a point, I think yeah. I was, uh, yeah, now that you're saying it, it's actually funny, right, um, how things sometimes work out. Indeed. Yeah. So, so, so back to the guy, because I'm fascinated yeah. with this as well. Uh, so, so your point earlier on that yeah, perhaps these, these like simple, in inverted commas, microorganisms were trying to create an environment in which they were more comfortable. That would mean warmer, basically, but not too warm and not too cold. Yeah, but, certain but, but, range but you would want, right? You but, would but that would imply some kind of, uh, some kind of foresight. Yeah, there you run into a problem, right? But yeah. or I mean, there are two ways to look into that, right? To look at this, there is. Um, I mean, you can go the Darwin way and say like, okay, only this will work because they can only tolerate so much. So there's a selection for it. Mm -hmm. Or you believe in some sort of, you know, goal <laughs> or some sort of thing that that organisms strive for or some foresight. It's, it's hard to decide, right? Um, and, and it's actually, that, that's one, one big question. You, you don't know, you can't say it, right? It's, I mean, of course, selection has a, has a, has a strong case here and so there is some sort of feedbacks, uh, you know, but, uh, but if, you if can't it explain work, it all. But you can't explain it all, all the time with only selection. Selection only doesn't work. There are actually nice studies, brilliant studies by different uh, working groups. Um, I guess Tim Lenton would be one of the people who contributed one very essential study where you would have this feedback cycle where evolution creates something and then it looks like the environment looks if this is doing any good for the system and then adjusts if necessary, things die off and you have a re-establishment and the whole thing goes to approval again and you basically can't really create anything that doesn't work in line with stabilizing the planet. That's kind of romantic, of course. Um, still, I, I mean, you would want to believe it. Mm -hmm. And with this, you wouldn't necessarily need a foresight. But somehow, organisms all would want to want the same. So it's actually more of an altruistic approach to look at the world, which, which, which I obviously like, but and then a competitive one, as actually the selection theory as it was in, in its origin, would put forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's where we are. <laughs> so there are models saying one thing, there are observations saying one thing and the other, so you can make your case so, so whichever way you want, right? So <coughs> I think we should, we should get into like, defining climate change. Mm -hmm. you, you gave a fantastic Science and Beers live talk last year on climate <laughs> change and climate engineering. So it was fun. What is climate change? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's actually a thing. You wrote this question to me, so I was actually having <laughs> a think about it, and I did together with my, um, what's he even, Don? I mean, my Don, <laughs> my Don Canfield, who is actually uh, one of the really important um, climate scientists or geobiologists on, on Earth, right? <laughs> that he could possibly have. We were like, what's climate change? It's like climate is changing continuously. That's right, right? Of course, so actually what is climate change? It is just a, a, a natural dynamic of the Earth, you would think. Because climate has been changing since ever. Mm -hmm. And it's been changing along developments of life and was initiated by it, but also by, by, by Did you just say climate Earth was dynamics. initiated by life? 
no, it was not initiated, but it was climate changes. Were rapid climate changes were initiated by life. Yeah. Hmm. So, so you so could the, ask I, if climate I, I, I is. Love, I love thinking about that there because it's, it's not just yeah. humans. It's, it's life. No, life generally. The, the I mean, think about the development of. Of, of like those major things like photosynthesis and then boom, snowball earth. I mean, yeah. so oh, well, you had those, I, I, big, I, I, I those think, big moments where you... I think for the listener we're, we're just going to have to explain. explain yeah, yeah, that. sure. Um, so you, you had a couple of big inventions in life, like first of all you had life, which um, changed the complete chemistry of the earth. And this life was only microbes, and most of the life on the planet is microbes. So, but those microbes, as I said before, like produce greenhouse gases and consume them. They take CO2 out of the atmosphere and make, make sugars, make biomass, their own bodies out of it, right? So they, they completely modulate the, the atmosphere and the temperature on Earth, and this is, this is a big deal. This actually already did a lot to our CO2 re records if we look at a deep time development of this. And then you had at a point, certainly late, but this was of course an impressive in, in, invention, you had uh, organisms, cyanobacteria, producing oxygen. This didn't happen all of a sudden, it was a slow process. And you had to essentially oxidize all chemicals, they were all reduced, which is a chemical state, right? They had, they, they had to oxidize all those chemicals, so it took a while until oxygen actually showed up measurably somewhere and there's this big debate about when this exactly was and I don't care enough. It was some time at a point and I agree. 2.5-2.8 billion years ago. Something yes like that. and I agree with whatever <laughs> the experts say on this. Um, it's a big debate and it's relevant in a sense because this, this development of oxygen it comes comes along with the development of a photosynthesis that is very efficient and photosynthesis is nothing but really efficiently taking out CO2 of the atmosphere so you could rapidly cool down the planet mm -hmm. and so there is a suspicion that this is actually what happened and if it gets cold well life dies at a point and this life then that dies some some of them don't die essentially and they may remember this and have in their genetics somehow the information to avoid that next time so, so, so or maybe not the atmosphere is very warm it's co2 uh photosynthesis is invented by cyanobacteria all the co2 comes out goes into their body mass and then they release oxygen to replace, release oxygen. kind of replace the co2 in the atmosphere and then the earth just there's no greenhouse gases anymore and the earth plunges into a snowball earth well, the snowball earth essentially comes from something else but um you have you have a certainly a rapid cooling at a point and then, okay, then you go back and you have this oxygen production, which is another problem. Mm. Oxygen per se is toxic to yeah. DNA. Yeah, it's it's, it's so problematic reactive. for DNA chemically, right? It, yeah. it degrades or it, well, it forms some sort of um, compounds, radicals that are able to um, degrade the DNA. And with this are, are not good for life forms. And those life forms that were not equipped for this by chance somehow, or purpose, whatever you want to, whatever's your preference, couldn't make it. So it was actually a problem. And Mass it extinction. extinction. Um, that was the idea of Lynn Margulis, who was the other inventor of the Gaia um, hypothesis. Though this um, mass extinction, well, yes and no. It's more that organisms find a place where they still can live, right? 
So the oxy oxygenation of the planet uh -huh. is, yeah. is a stepwise process and organisms could retract to environments. So you have all these happy, happy organisms in, in the ocean, for example, yeah. they're loving life. And then all of a sudden, there's oxygen everywhere. Well, it's not all of a sudden. And they're, and, they're, <laughs> and they're being poisoned, and then they have to like sink down well, into those, the dirt those, those and, and crawl underneath the this, this sand. And, well, and, and live you're there. exaggerating it a bit, but it's it would be, it would be really it's very visual. It, it's very there. visual. No, 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 you paint a picture nicely. So I'm usually asking in one of my first year lectures, like, is there life without oxygen on the planet? And the kids say no. And um, obviously, there's a lot of life without oxygen on our planet and our bodies, even, right? There's a gigantic mass of microbes living in our intestines that, that live we need. happily. Yeah, we absolutely need, otherwise, it would look quite stupid. And um, I mean, they live oxygen free, and then we have the deep sea that is anoxic partly, and we have oxygen minimum zones. We have different anoxic habitats in, in, in different, on different scales. There are particles that are in their middle oxygen free. And um, yeah, so this is a very common thing. Yeah. So oxygen is not necessarily a preferable substance for life, unless you're a higher animal or something, because then you need it. It doesn't work without. Yeah. But it, this was a revolutionary invention anyway. It's the, totally, the, the, it's, it's, it's the big deal, right? It, it's it was the a big, big deal. deal. It's still yeah. a big deal. Sure, I mean, there are a couple of the big deals, right? One of them is photosynthesis. The other ones are, I guess, the endosymbiosis. Also by Lynn Margulis. Yeah. Yeah. Also discovered by the Lynn Margulis um, woman who is a very impressive scientist, um, who was a very impressive scientist. And she, she discovered that some bacteria took up, uh, took up other microbes and those then developed into mitochondria, which is essentially what makes energy in our cells. And other microbes were taken up, cyanobacteria, which made the chloroplasts and, and allowed for the plants to develop, right? And this is, of course, um, I mean, that, that uh, would explain all kind of complex life. So this is very impressive. And there's nothing comparable to this. And obviously, people are jealous. Mm -hmm. That's why they kind of blame her that it wasn't her idea and she wasn't good at all. I've never heard that. that it's a common thing, especially by um, jealous senior colleagues who are often male. Okay. Uh, who essentially said Lynn Margulis, who often say, you often hear the same sentence, Lynn Margulis had three ideas, two of them were not hers and one of them proved wrong, um, which I find uh, very disrespectful because her contribution, I, I have, her I've contribution never, is so huge. That. That, that's, 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 that's terrible. I yeah, heard I, it a lot yeah. and it's, um, it's always pissing me off. Mm -hmm. I really, I can't accept this. Her contribution was like incomparably huge. So this should be um, respected. And I, I mean, obviously, the evolution of oxygen, but also the endosymbiosis, were the things that completely changed our planet and life on the planet. So. Yeah. Back to, to, to the climate. And, and so let's say in Earth's four billion year history of life, uh, there's been an interaction between microbes that have pushed uh, greenhouse gas levels up, brought them down. It's been very, very warm. It's been very, very cold. Often, whenever we see it in, say, the, the press, we say this is the warmest time on record, you know, that we're currently living in. 
but the records only go back yeah. maximum 800,000 years, you know. But no, but what they mean is actually back. the human record, right? If they yeah. say like, this was the hottest summer, let's say, since record, that means like, since like, what, 1920? Yeah, but, um, but, but let's just, just put it in the, in the chronological of, of course, con yeah. context. Yeah, sure, let's you know, you know, do it. So, so we're, the Earth has been warmer before, and there's been more sure. carbon dioxide. Sure, it was like, um, well, four to five times as much in Earth yeah. history, but also the Earth was completely different. One, right? Life wasn't that complex. We didn't have um, any, any, any higher animals, anything like, like you see now. So it was a completely different system. The system was to evolve to what we are now, and like this makes actually the case, right? The system had to stabilize to allow for those higher life forms, and those higher life forms backwards put a feedback into it to stabilize it even more the higher plants are more temperature sensitive than bacteria are so but they now take up a lot of the carbon dioxide so they this creates some sort of feedback loop where actually certain temperatures needed to stabilize the co2 content stabilizing it even more all the time so if you go back in earth history sure you had it warmer you had more co2 you had a couple of different other constraints, the oceans were chemically different and so on. But the difference is now that actually the life which we have right now on Earth cannot tolerate this. It's not made for it. It's not made for a rapid change in temperature or CO2. It's not made for it. It's not made for it. And, and th this, this is the key, it's the speed of change. It's the speed of change and it's also the complexity of life that we have on the planet. The, the, the diversity in a, in a sense, like if I say complexity, I mean it in a sense of diversity, like how many species we have, but also in the sense of how um, like difficult those, those organisms are constructed, right? So we are, we are quite difficult animals, right? <laughs> we have a lot of different tissues that have very um, specific requirements and so do many higher life forms have that. And we can't take this rapid change if it's like 10 degrees warmer animals start to die and we see this right animals start to die we have a species loss which is fairly high and plants start to die and this is problematic even more so than animals because they actually moderate actively the climate even more so if we lose plant species if we lose parts of the, the carbon dioxide stock in plants like the amazon forests the rainforests that is a problem we release too much CO2 to the air, we, we don't fix enough. So it gets increasingly warmer and you can create a runaway effect with this. When increasing the temperature more and more, you release the, the methane, which is stored in the, in the permafrost, in the ice shells, in the ice shell, on the Arctic and Antarctic. This is then warming it up even more and you can't easily go back to it. Because if you kill the species, then moderate now the climate, it takes forever to re-evolve them. That's a problem. So you would lose some biodiversity. So the higher life forms would possibly not be able to tolerate a rapid climate change. The lower life forms may. So the, 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 the planet per se and life per se would probably not get lost in that sense. Mm -hmm. But you would have a readjustment of species, right? Of species diversity mm -hmm. and of species per se. Which would mean possibly the loss of humans and the loss of some other species. 
this would be in line totally with this idea of, that Tim Landon put forward, right? With this ever-adjusting feedback cycle that you have evolution creating something and if it doesn't stabilize, it gets killed off by the evolution. So I, 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 um, but, but, but it's kind of depressing if you're a human because you're the one destabilizing, yeah. right? So I, I want to put this here, I, I just, just based, based on what you just said there, let, let's say whatever it was just uh, microorganisms, the fluctuations in, in temperature were, were humongous. And then as, say, organisms became more complex and diversity grew, the fluctuations became less and less and less. And that's where we're at today because the, the, every single species plays a role sure. in, in keeping the, the Goldilocks sure. zone right here. We have this huge diversity and, and does that together and that's a very wonderful situation, right? Yeah. But um, um, if you look at the CO2 record over ancient times, right, you, you know this picture quite well, you see all those big ups and downs and ups and downs. And then you see it narrowing to a very small value as we have actually now, it's actually small. Mm. in the context of Earth history, right? Mm. And then you keep the, the fluctuations, the, the up and down kind of low. It's all narrow. But now you have this rapid increase and life only, life as we know it, only evolved in this short time where you had it relatively stable. Mm. So life is, is possibly not able to deal with it mm -hmm. if it's different than this. And now you have this rapid increase over a very short time frame. And this yeah, increase yeah. could go on and, and cause runaways effect, runaway effects that multiply it. So this would be problematic because this life is not evolved like this. It's not evolved to deal with it. Though, of course, if we believe in this whole readjustment and selection for the stabilization, then we, we are humans. We, di we, we did something to destabilize but we are actually born with a brain, so we may actually hold some tools in our hands to actually stabilize it again and to actively now do something about it. And I find this a wonderful thought. How can we do that? How can we do that? How right? can we do that? I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of technologies proposed to actively capture CO2 from the atmosphere. There are different disciplines that do it with different things like there, there is filters, there are, there are power plants that basically do a reverse thing. There are all kinds of plant more trees approaches, but what has actually been, been shown now is that we really need to create a CO2 sink. So we can't just not produce more, we really need to create something called a negative emission, so we need to suck up the CO2 again. And well, as I said, there's this so-called so carbon capture and storage um, technology which is which is basically some sort of way to filter out CO2 directly from the atmosphere and store it for example underneath this deep sea. Mm. There are some methods and those are the methods that I'm interested in which are in line with an, an earlier earth model which which basically enable those CO2 sinks again that we, we knew over earth history where we had a lot of algae for example taking up CO2 extremely um, by having an optimal pH value for example in their surrounding and by being fed with the right nutrients so they just biologically suck up CO2 and when they die they export it to the deep sea that's an option too there are all kinds well, of, of approaches export, you mean buried they yeah yeah buried, they, they so sink down decomposed. essentially they sink down and, and what they become is uh, they become fossils they become fossilized right and um, then they possibly turn into oil, which we then happily pump up again and burn. In a um, well, <laughs> we, we, we possibly shouldn't do that anymore. But um, so there are, there are 
different angles that you can take on depending on the discipline you're from. Essentially, you got to start with educating humans and with decreasing our need to produce all the time more, consume so much, and, and then dispose it. You know, this is this is our general problem. But from my side, as a, as an ocean scientist, as a, as an oceanographer, I was fascinated by this idea to to make the ocean take up more CO2 because it has a natural capacity to do this chemically but also biologically and you can enhance this capacity by basically imitating the ancient oceans, the deep time oceans by, by fertilizing them in a sense or changing their pH values and this is what I'm trying right now together with colleagues all over the world because there are lots of projects now popping up and um, we're collaborating with all the different types of and all the different oceans and hope to come up with proper strategies for all over the world I, because I, I, ecosystems I, are different, right? I'd love for you to elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> so what you can do, I'm in the ocean. So you have CO2 in the atmosphere. CO2 just diffuses into water. You know it like from essentially a soda or something where you have CO2 in, right? So we get our, our, our bubbles nicely. and it's delicious. Yeah, I mean, IPA. the beer has, dis has, has a CO2 dissolved in it. Um, which stays in solution in some form. So it dissolves into bicarbonate and carbonate and creates H plus ions. That's a bit chemical now. It means essentially it gets more sour. It gets more acidic, mm -hmm. right? So you create an acid, a carbonic acid, and you create um, essentially the ions promoting this. So this is a problem for organisms. They dissolve, they can't take it, they can't uh, properly thrive, they can't properly do their, their photosynthesis, you want to protect them. There's no good, because those organisms are important. If it's algae, it's really important, they take up the CO2. Mm -hmm. What you can do is, is actually two things. You can feed them with nutrients so they are happier. That's been done, didn't quite work, um, but it works for some areas. So what you can now do is basically give them an alkaline substance to make the pH right to have them not acidifying, but to, to make them feel pH-wise well, to make them happy. And you can do that by grinding stones and throw them into water. Because there are some stones which naturally are weathered into water, like from, from the mountains, right? You have the weathering, and the weathering brings in some sort of ions, and but you can also enhance this weathering. It's also called enhanced weathering um, by just like artificially grind the stones, increase their surface and pour them into water and then you can see if the organisms get happier they should. Mm -hmm. But um, we don't know, so this is a promising approach and there have been um, nice calculations and predictions done about it, which are very promising and say you could protect ecosystems with this and enhance CO2 uptake, both chemically and biologically in the ocean and make it export to the deep sea so it's not our problem anymore for a couple of thousands of years <laughs> and cool <laughs> yeah. down the planet Still if you're in a yeah. really good shape with this. Uh -huh. um, but in the first place you could stabilize the climate, right? Uh -huh. And this is what, I mean, as I said, there were predictions which are, which are models, which are mathematical calculations and that's fine, but no one really tried and colleagues all over the world um, together with us and we are, we are trying this. We're trying to establish a, a proper protocol for different ecosystems to find the right mineral for all the ecosystems that are endangered mostly and to enhance this carbon pump, as you call it. 
through the, the grinding of, of, of rocks. Through grinding of rocks. Limestone or so you like literally that. take, right, limestone is one of the candidates. You take a stone, you grind it down to basically dust, right? Trying not to yeah. burn CO2 as you, as you grind it. And now you try to be, it's a trade-off. Yeah. As you put forward, yeah. yeah, it's a trade-off. You have to be careful, like not to put too much energy into the grinding. So yeah. you need to find a grind size that that a grind size that works well yeah. for your go, but it doesn't cost too much of energy. And that, and also you need to think about transportation, mm -hmm. about mining for those minerals, things like this, right? You would have limestone as one example. There's olivine, there's calcite, there are a couple of other examples that are promising candidates. Um, so one of my PhD students, Jakob, he's working on this right now and tries to establish a proper chemistry to uh, balance pH values. And he's already identified a couple of good substances that work well without too much grinding. Mm -hmm. um, though I think he secretly likes the grinding most of it. Um, <laughs> no, but Jakob does, does um, already the first parts of the project. He, he carried out the chemistry part and we already identified potential candidates now we are trying them out on, on, on cultures to see how they impact on what uh, on cultures of, of algae and microbes okay. to see how they, they directly impact on life forms on, on on important primary producers that actually fix the co2 from the atmosphere that uh, that pull it out and um, that's what he will start now he kind of went on vacation I don't know I mean, maybe he comes <laughs> back um, but afterwards we can start our culture experiments and this will be fantastic. Then we know if this really works in the sense of protecting the biology. It may also disturb them, we really don't know. It's it, only a prediction so it, far. It, 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 it's not, because, because of the, the diversity in biology on the Earth. Um, yeah, you and, don't and, know and, it. And, and, <laughs> so. and, what, and, what, and what we've done already to kind of like mess up that diversity. And then, and then well, then it, we see it, it as our test to stabilize it again, right? Yeah, we, yeah, we do, but, it's but it's, our job. It, it, it doesn't sound like an easy task. Well, it's not. <laughs> yeah. If it would be easy, someone else would have done it already. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy, of course. Let, let, let's get a beer. Let's get a beer. Cheers. Cheers again. That's a nice beer. Mmm. <laughs> Can, can you give can you give me uh, like a, a an example of a, of a Gaia feedback system where, where biology regulates the chemistry of Earth? Well, essentially, that was what we what we um, would have talked all the time um, about, which is the stabilization of Earth temperature. But there are smaller feedback cycles that you could possibly think about a bit easier. There's actually something called the Claw hypothesis, which is a bit um, um, in competition with Gaia, but essentially, well, I often use it as a Gaia example because I look at it like this, which is um, which is the following. So imagine you're in the ocean and you're um, phytoplankton or a bacterium, you're a small organism, and you contribute to, to producing a substance, and the substance is called DMS, and DMS is a substance that evaporates, it, it diffuses out of the ocean and gets into the air. And if it does so, it makes clouds because it's a something called a cloud nuclei. So it's a core for making a cloud. With so about water around droplets it. can, can cling yeah. to this particle and then and exactly. Then form so it's it's something that that clouds form around. Those organisms do that, um, and the idea behind it is essentially that they do it 
to, to then more or less initiate this cloud formation to cool locally down the, the ocean. So to basically have a feedback between organisms and the atmosphere by cooling it down again. So this is a very, very nice idea. And it presupposes some, some sort of, of, of will of the organisms to do so, right? If they, they would feel hot or so, and then they produce the DMS, form a cloud, and the cloud cools down the situation there, and everyone is happy again. That's a bit of a simplistic picture, of course, but it's a nice illustration of how a feedback cycle would theoretically um, happen. So I, I've been working on a couple of feedback cycles myself, and um, one of the ones that I really liked was, uh, or that I was really interested in and that I was happy to discover, was one in, in so-called oxygen minimum zones. This is where the ocean lost a lot of oxygen and actually became anaerobic again, which means there is no oxygen, mm -hmm. so there's special life. Um, what you have there is you have water coming up from the deep ocean and it brings nutrients along and those nutrients make a lot of um, other organisms being productive or phytoplankton essentially doing primary production, that's how it's called. And this means essentially they, they draw CO2 off the atmosphere and build up a lot of biomass. This biomass sinks down again and gets respired by other organisms because they eat it and essentially use all oxygen compounds up and all the water becomes more and more anoxic. And this, because it's, it's in the ocean and you have water movements, creates some sort of circle. It really is physically driven in a circle up again to the surface and you enhance this effect more and more because low oxygen water favors this whole nutrient transport up, right? So you lose oxygen, you bring more nutrients to the surface. You get the system more productive material sinks down, you get less oxygen because it's respired all of this, right? And so it goes on. And my idea was that this has some sort of endpoint because organisms then at a point, everything becomes so anoxic that it produces some toxic substance. This always happens. And this substance is called hydrogen sulfide. This is produced then and kills off all life so that the whole system becomes unproductive and also the nutrients don't promote this productivity anymore, so essentially you kill off the system, which leads then to less respiration also, so everything dies, right? So you don't have this anymore that the oxygen gets respired away and the system can normalize again. So it is complicated to understand, but what it essentially means is that you would not expect the ocean to lose more and more oxygen as it has been predicted, but that life, because it's sensitive to low oxygen itself at a point, and to toxic substances resulting from this would die off and not be productive anymore and you would normalize the situation again until it's okay and life can live again. Uh -huh. So you would have a rather an oscillation of situations and this is also what we see over Earth history a lot. You have actually situations oscillate. You have CO2 going up, organisms become active, it goes down again. It comes to cold, it goes up again because organisms die, right? So goes down again because they become active again. So you see this actually in a lot of examples. Another classic example, I think it's one of the Lovelock examples, is the salinity in the water. So the, the, the amount of salt that you have in the ocean, which should actually technically increase all the time because it's minerals flooded in from, from the earth mm -hmm. and they just basically get transported into the oceans via rivers or directly because they are washed off. So actually, the salinity should increase all the time, but it doesn't 
it doesn't because there are some microbes and also little little plants, phytoplankton, that produce substances that contain salts and they then diffuse out of the water and go into the atmosphere like methyl chloride or methyl iodide. And this keeps salinity constant. So life interacts with the biosphere, uh, with, the, with, the, with the geosphere. So the biosphere interacts with the geosphere and you stabilize the whole system with this, which is again a bit of a romantic thought that it by purpose evolved like this, but it makes also sense because if you have too much salt in the ocean, organisms die too. Mm -hmm. So there may have been a necessity to create this pathway to actually get rid of the salt actively by the organisms. There, there are two beautiful, beautiful examples about, uh, about, about how Earth is a self-regulating system. But yeah, maybe, maybe the fact that there is life Self-regulation is an, is an inevitability. Yeah. N not that not that they were actively searching for that yeah. that, that Goldilocks spot, but but like yeah. it, that's just the way it, 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 it will happen in a complex system. Yeah, it's probably how it has to happen. Otherwise, it would not um, become Otherwise complex. Otherwise, we wouldn't right? be here talking about it. And possibly, um, I I I believe you you're having a point there. I mean, it it. it it must be somewhat like this to, to be able to, to develop life in, in, in that diversity that we know now. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's probably controversial then. As it always is. And, and then you have the, you know... I mean, I believe like it, it must be like this. You can't, you can't have those huge fluctuations and have some somewhat dependent bodies in this system thriving. We are dependent on the environment a lot, right? Mm -hmm. We need certain concentrations of everything, of oxygen, of whatever is in the air, whatever is in our nutrition. We need this. Mm -hmm. So you need to create a quite stable system already to evolve something like a higher animal. Mm -hmm. So this is only possible like this. Of course controversial, but this would be my take on it. So yeah, but, but so your story about the oxygen minimum zones there—that that, that's uh, that's the first time I've heard uh, a positive take on <laughs> on that because they that's what I uh, <laughs> like to put forward about oxygen minimum zones. A lot of my research was about those waters in the ocean, right? You find them in the tropics, mostly, and this is of course a good 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 place to to carry out research. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. Um, so I traveled to all those exotic countries to measure the water columns and this was a conclusion that I, I came to and it was not a very popular con uh, conclusion because essentially the models would predict a complete um, depletion of oxygen and stabilization in this oxygen depleted status where only certain life can be and higher life can't. But I do not think this is right and uh, yeah. I believe this is a good example actually of some self-regulating feedback and of some feedback loop that actually stabilizes the system. And if it stabilizes the system, the Earth is a system, it's part of the Earth, so that, that works on any scale, I would mm -hmm. believe. And um, of course it kind of fed into what I always thought since, since I was an early student and worked on nitrous oxide. So it, it was all feeding into this and possibly it just was what I want to see, but um, I'm just trying to explore it. 
I'm not saying it is the absolute truth. I try to, to figure it out, essentially. And I have my one PhD student, Christian, and uh, my other one, Pei Hang, working on, on those feedback loops in oxygen minimum zones, essentially, and they help me with this and, and have their own thoughts, of course. And Christian put, on, put, put his own feedback ideas forward, which are not completely the same as mine, but interesting too. And so does Pei Hang. So we are trying to... I, I, right now I have four, yeah. So this is a beautiful, um, a beautiful opportunity for me to interact with those people because they are all very smart and, and probably can move that field way more forward than I could. So I'm, I'm lucky to have them. Of course, I hired them, <laughs> so so it's also it's also a decision. But I hired them because I I like their thinking. Um, so they are very special people. And I, I, the more people like, like you and, and and your students that, that are working towards understanding these very very complex things about how a planet, sure. how how the the biology on a planet interacts with the planet mm -hmm. and, and vice versa, that's a very complicated thing. But the more <laughs> Close, closer we can get to understanding how it works as a whole, I think the the, the more appreciation we would have for yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah, come on, it's so interesting. It's, it's, it's like it's it's, it's, um, it's the big question per se. I would say how this works and if if this works like this, right? If this is a thing at all that mm. things self self regulate or not, this would be um, the biggest question to resolve. And well, as as this is my basis, and I would be tempted to say, yeah, things should self-regulate to stabilize the planet. I, I developed those geoengineering projects on it because I think we are part of this, mm -hmm. of, the, of life on Earth, right, and have to contribute to the self-regulation in a way, and we are a special type of life. We are the most novel one. We are the, um, the, the one that actually does by, by nature a lot of geoengineering by building houses and cultivating all the landscapes. Um, so that, that's how we got to where we are to, to sure and we gained energy via well uncommon and unusual and unpopular pathways right and messed up the atmosphere some some bit but this is only a very short episode in human evolution so we may be able to reverse it and this is actually part of evolution I believe so so this is how I look at this in order to, to speak with an authority about the bigger picture about how the world works, you need to understand the microorganisms. I think that's a beautiful story. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, you know, you're a marine biologist. You were inspired to do marine biology whenever you were a seven-year-old girl looking through a jam jar down at yeah. the sea, looking at, looking at anemones, yeah. you know? Um, but Gotta the, start from a, somewhere. <laughs> a, a, a lot of people that think about marine biology think, oh yeah, whales and dolphins, like, that, that would be a marine biologist. Oh, that's that's what the classic thinking about exactly. it is. Think, it's yeah, it's okay, not, by the way. Whales and dolphins, <laughs> they're all fair enough, but the, what really makes the world go around is the microorganisms, especially <laughs> those microorganisms in the ocean. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I think that's, that's, that's a sexy part of marine biology. Absolutely. You know? It's the biogeochemistry that the uh, edge of, of, of life forms where you have life, just barely have life and the chemistry essentially, right? That's what yep. makes it. And we are, we are some, some, some part of it, but essentially, I mean, this is what rules the world. Yep. I know this, the uh, there, there's this email um, signature that one of my students, Christian, sends always out and it says like, who rules the world? It's microbes. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> always <laughs> in his <laughs> ears. Um, <laughs> in a way, right? It is, in a way it isn't. Mm. It's a, 
it's the the, the basis, the fundamental uh, regulation of the interaction between chemistry and life. But of course, the higher life has a has a extremely big role. And without this, we wouldn't have a stable atmosphere as we have. And without this, we have, wouldn't have a stable temperature. Mm -hmm. So how how would that even work? So you need essentially all life. And you know, you see those advertisements even of. Greenpeace and other things that say like, oh, humans are the cancer of the earth. No, this is not how evolution works. It all belongs to the system. It's a complete ecosystem. You can't just remove the top species or Every like the human species the or whatever species. You can't. It belongs together. It's one business. And if you remove one, you mess up the whole thing. And even if you remove the humans, you mess up the whole thing. It has to re-evolve, but it won't evolve possibly the same way. Maybe it would. but. Um, this is not how evolution works, and I'm always shocked by those weird advertisements and like that that essentially make the humans the bad player here. This is not the right way to look into it. Yeah. Of course, there's yeah. some messing up, but there's also the potential to fix and to develop anything from there. And this potential is in the humans. And that, that potential, first and foremost, comes with respect for nature, and then. The sure. And the pursuit of knowledge. Sure. I mean, you, you need to establish that knowledge in the first place, but then humans can. Mm -hmm. Humans can understand. Humans can be smart about it. Humans can develop, so and develop thinking. So, so I, d I disagree. I just disagree with this whole notion of humans playing the the diverse part of this, and this is not not the whole story and not the right way to look into look at it. It's not how you can look at the world. Now, you're, you're, uh, you've, you've been busy, you have, you have a group, you've got four PhD students. Not so busy. Yeah. <laughs> There's always space for more, for a beer. <laughs> now I'm busy. Beer's also part of the plan as well. But, but I'm busy, I'm happy to be. What is, what is next? What is on the horizon? What is the future plans for your work? So, I mean, it's obviously, um, well, I'm... The, the projects that I have running span really everything like from elaborating on more feedbacks to um, finding solutions for climate change problems like everything. Simple between. thing like finding a solution to climate change. That, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean yeah. simple things like, <laughs> you know, your day job. well there are a couple of, uh, you know, very skillful colleagues who helped me with this now, who, who do the same and I'm, I'm really a lucky person to, to be able to collaborate with the best people in the field. and. Uh, as I said, I, I got this funding. This was a gigantic opportunity for me to develop that further, and I can actually really approach this symptom of climate change, which is ocean acidification, but also we, as a side effect, will take up more CO2 from the atmosphere with developing those methods with the grinded stones. And um, I find it wonderful. I also, I mean, as you as you already said, it's it's right. I already have a handful of PhD students, which is a big team, and if you really want to spend time with them and understand their thinking and develop, then it actually is a lot. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I can actually even hire the same amount of people again because I, I just was lucky, right, and had a, had a good idea for projects. So I'm constantly hiring people now to, to develop the ocean negative emission technologies further and to also understand feedbacks and to understand potential dangers before we upscale those applications because a lot of people are now looking into upscaling this before we actually know what they are doing. 
so this is um, going to be a difficult thing. Yeah. And um, well, I'm I'm confident we are, we will be good on this. And as I said, we already started our first experiments and um, in, in the lab. Yeah, in the lab, okay. and found some promising approaches that we could possibly apply, and we will start applying it in, in Danish waters in Limfjorden, which is a um, on on Jutland, a, a nice fjord system which gets water inflow from the north. The struggles with deoxygenation, which means like it's actually losing oxygen at high rates in summer, but also it's, it can be quite acidic, so we have a good environment that we in the first place can try to protect. And then we go to one of the major productive areas in the ocean, which is the upwelling system of Mauritania, which is in the Atlantic, it's of Africa, right, around the islands of Cape Verde. Mm -hmm. It's a nice place to go again. <laughs> it's one of the places I was um, at for many occasions during my master's and PhD time and I have good collaboration there and we will try how actually our approaches work in this system to then feed it into a model that we just will join together with all the working groups that are working on this globally and this is located with my collaborators in Kiel who just try to then find a global approach to uh, where we apply the best strategy to make it happen and make uh, the CO2 uptake yeah. brilliant so, so and protect the biodiversity at the same time. I find this really yeah. fascinating right now. I, I, I want to hear more about that collaboration between scientists. You know. Ah, you know how scientists are. It's all interesting people, right? You have those special persons. Um, and, and by nature of our job system, it's all a competition in a way. But then again, it's now, I think there's a certain change right now happening where people are really interested in such a profound way that they actually do not compete anymore, but rather collaborate because they are seeing shit is going down and we actually have to. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of governments are able to and willing to put money into our different projects. So we actually get our funding from different sources. Denmark was willing to do so, different foundations in Denmark was, were willing to do so. And um, well, I, I was in that sense, um, again, lucky because, you know, there were a couple of people who were very interested in this topic and they may have been interested in this topic way before I was. One of, one of those people is uh, Leonard Bach and I studied with that guy. We did our masters together and uh, more or less our PhDs at the same institute, so we know each other since long. Mm -hmm. He went to Tasmania and has a junior professorship there and, and just um, got promoted to a permanent position, which I think this was uh, this is this is right. He is so good, and they are just they are actually lucky to have him. And he's working on the same thing, but in the Southern Ocean, so we can nicely combine it and uh, we facilitate this by student exchanges and so we are, we are able to collaborate in a non-competitive sense to bring our results together. We have other collaborators at the main ocean institutes like France has the Ifremer, we have a collaborator there who is uh, interested in, in organisms that live on the sea floor. So this is not what I am doing, I'm working on organisms that live in the water itself. Bringing this together will be extremely important. We need to understand the whole ecosystem. But we are specialists on different scales. We have collaborators in Germany that are good at you know, predicting what this will mean in the future. Mm -hmm. So this will be important. And then we have 
collaborators in Princeton where I had a guest professorship and um, they are able to actually upscale it to the globe. Um, so they will do this, which will be brilliant because then we actually worldwide can say this is a good strategy for here, this is a good strategy for there. This will actually be a very nice network. So in science there's a worldwide collaboration to try to improve. That's at least the ideal that you would want to have, right? Yeah. It's not always real. But um, I think the younger generation is more developing towards it. Mm. And I'm, I'm really happy to be part of this. Mm. I don't see science as something which is a one-man or woman show. It's, there's no point. It's science. It's, uh, it's uh, first of all paid usually by the taxpayer, so yeah. it belongs to the public. Yeah. And yeah. second, I mean, where's the point? We, yeah. want, to, we want to gain knowledge. So and we create knowledge. knowledge I mean, together. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Science Speakers Podcast. If you have any follow-up questions about what was just discussed, please uh, add a comment on one of our social media links or feel free to send us an email at scienceandbeers at gmail.com. I will add a couple of links in the description so you can follow Carolyn, keep updated with her work, send her a question if, if you want. Uh, also, please consider supporting the podcast. It's, it's currently run uh, independently and voluntarily, and I've invested some, some money in, in equipment, as well as delicious Brooklyn IPAs. So your, your help would be appreciated. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash the Science and Beers podcast. It would also be a great help if you were to recommend this podcast to a friend, or leave a review. You can do that if you're listening on iTunes, for example. That would help us greatly to spread the word. Thanks a lot.